Welcome to the Fort Hill Community Church Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning. Well, welcome everyone. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Glad to have you here with us this morning here at Fort Hill Community Church. As we uh, do what we do, we gather together to worship together, to work through God's Word together. We're going to be in John chapter 17. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, we will have the text behind us as well over here. We're going to be in verses 1 through 5 as we start John 17, which is known as the High Priestly Prayer. You can go and turn there in your Bibles. On March 12th of this year, uh, what at the time was believed to be the football from the final touchdown pass of Mr. Thomas Brady of his career, that football was put on auction. And it was sold for $518,628 for a football. Pretty crazy. Um, the next day, the, the next day that that football was sold, Tom Brady came out of retirement. And so that, the value of that football dropped um, probably like 95%, right? It wasn't nearly as valuable as it was at the time because now he's going to throw another football, another touchdown, and, and you know, it loses the value. And the buyer became the unluckiest person in the entire world at that moment, right? Talk about a day late and a dollar short. Now he's like $500,000 short, right? Um, yeah, so that happened to that guy. They actually... they. Um, canceled out that, so he didn't, you know, they, he didn't lose his money. Anyways, um, so we see things like that. People spending so much money on these types of objects, this football, and it makes us question why people find something like this so valuable. Why would someone spend, I mean, that's more than my... Uh, Tom Brady is viewed by many as the greatest quarterback in NFL history, and I know if you talk to anyone here, they're going to say that. I'm not from around here, so I might try to argue with you. I think at this point, there's no argument to make. He is the greatest of all time, right? Um, and so they want to participate in that glory, that honor, that praise. And so we buy the jerseys. We go to the games. We buy the footballs. We say, no thank you to houses. Give me the football because we want a taste of the glory. That's what we want. We want a taste of the glory. Today we're going to talk about glory, and we're going to talk about glor a glory that is far more valuable than footballs, but a glory that is also absolutely free, that you don't have to pay half a million dollars to get. Today we're going to talk about the glory of Jesus, we're going to see in verses 1 to 5 of John 17, and we're going to talk about two particular glories, two specific glories. First, the glory of the cross. And second, the glory of eternal life for us that flows out of that glorious cross. And so let's read, starting there in verse 1, John 17. Let's start there, and then let's go to verse 5. It says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. 
And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is a deep, deep chapter, John 17. There's a, if you've read, I remember uh, whenever I was in college, sophomore year was like the year that I figured out this Jesus guy. Not that I figured him out, but, you know, that I made it real. And I remember I bought one of those moleskin journals, and I was journaling. I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I just reading and writing. And the first chapter, or the first time I did that was through John 17, which I could have picked a much easier chapter to do that with. Um, but I was reading, I was like, I don't know what the heck he's talking about here. It's so deep. And so today, we are going to work through just the first part, and then next week and the following, work through the rest of it. But this is known as the high priestly prayer. The high priestly prayer. It is a prayer of Jesus, and what it does is it offers us a glimpse into the prayer life of Christ. Uh, the Bible says that God exists, uh, there's one God that exists in three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that's the Trinity, and they exist in perfect unity, perfect harmony with each other, perfect intimacy with each other. And what John 17 lets us do is peer into that intimacy that exists between the Father and the Son at the apex of His ministry. This is a crazy thing, if you really think about it, right? We get to read the prayers of Jesus. Earlier in the Gospels, the disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. And so he gives them the template. This is the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art, uh, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He kind of works through it. This is just the Son coming to the Father on the eve of his execution. And what occupies his mind at this moment, that's what we're going to look at. It's real. It's raw. Jesus has just finished pouring out every word, every teaching, every miracle that he has done with his disciples in tow. Three years of preparation to get to this moment. We've worked through the Upper Room Discourse, John 13 through 16, where Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit's going to come to you, empower you to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. And now, on the eve of all of this, he caps it all off by praying to the Father. Praying to the Father. He prays first for himself, Next week, he prays for his disciples. And then finally, he prays for us, the church. Today, we're going to focus on the topic that Jesus spends the least amount of time praying on, and that is himself. And so what we need to do is ask ourselves, what occupies Jesus' mind at the end of it all? This is the end of it all. What occupies his mind? Think about what's around the bend. Betrayal. Torture, execution, death. What occupies his mind? Knowing these things are about to happen, what occupies his mind is glory. Glory. He uses the word five times here in these five verses, and the first thing he prays for is the glory of the cross. Let's read again, verse 1 and verse 4. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, 
that the Son may glorify you. Skip down to verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Let's just look at these first few words here. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. If you have uh, read the Gospels, this phrase, the hour has come, or the hour has not yet come, it pops up a lot. I believe uh, whenever uh, Jesus was in his, uh, I believe it's Luke 4, he's preaching in his hometown of Nazareth, and he says that the, what he's preaching has been fulfilled in their day. And then they get mad and want to stone him, and they run him out. It's, it's, it's like he's on a cliff, and they want to kill him because they're just so, you know, they think he's crazy and a blasphemer. And it says that he just disappeared or just got away from him because his hour had not yet come. It wasn't time for Jesus to die. But now we come to this prayer, and it says, Now the hour has come, Father, glorify your name. In John 1.14, it says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus has journeyed up and down Judea and Galilee, preaching the kingdom of God. He has performed signs and wonders. He has called hearers, of his word to repentance and faith. And what was the purpose of all of this? Why did he do all of this? You say, well, so that the world could know salvation, and that's right. But what is the word that he uses? Glory. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. Glorify your son. At the end of this gospel message that we believe, that God so loved the world that he sent his son, to come and save sinners from certain death, certain damnation, through repentance and faith. At the end of that message is glory. That's what's at the end of it. You may think salvation, and yes, salvation is at, at the end of it. We're saved, praise God, heaven to heaven we go. But the purpose of that is so that God would look good, that his name would be glorified, that Jesus wins. That's what it's about, right? That Jesus wins. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. That word glory is a code word for crucifixion. That the Son came and died on the cross. And so as I think about this, I'll never understand how we have been able to make this book about us, right? <laughs> to make this service about us, right? To make this preaching about us. And we're a part of this. But God is not in our orbit, right? As far as we're not the sun and God's circling us. It's not how it works. All of this is about him being made great. It's about his name. And we're along for the ride. And that's what we were created for. To image him. We're created in the image of God to show his glory. That's why Israel existed. The nations, do you want to know who this God is? Look at Israel. Israel failed. Let me send my second son. He'll do it. You know what? He did do it. You know what they did to him? They killed him. They killed him because he lived for the glory of God. The glory that Jesus is speaking about here is a glory that's tied to a specific hour, a specific time. It's the glory of Calvary. There that Jesus was crucified on the cross Glory is a code word here for crucifixion. That's what he means if you think about it. If you really think about it, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. 
What is the hour? The hour of my crucifixion. What's about to happen, Jesus calls glory. Now it takes a special eye to look upon the bloodied, broken, and bruised body of this man from Nazareth. And instead of seeing disgust, and as it says in Isaiah, a man from whom people hide their face, instead of seeing that broken, bloodied, and bruised man on the cross, what you see is glory. It takes a special eye to see that. To see as John the Baptist saw at the beginning of John in chapter 2, whenever he sees Jesus for the first time, what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What did the Israelites do with lambs? They killed them. They killed them. They sacrificed them on the altar for the forgiveness of their sins. And now, upon the altar of Calvary, the Lamb of God was slain. As the blood flows, we behold His glory. It's crazy. How strange the glory of God. How opposite the glory of God compared to what we ascribe glory, right? Who makes our headlines? Who receives our awards? Who is enshrined in our halls? Think about it. Like the uh, Met Gala, right? I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Met Gala. That all these um, actors and actresses, or I guess actors, I think that's the word they use for everybody, um... It's about being seen. It's like the Hunger Games, right? Not if you've seen the movie. Everyone's just festooned and all this crazy stuff. You know, it's like, it's just, you know, it's, it's just too much, really, right? It's glorious, quote, unquote, right? And then you see the Son of God praying, God, Father, glorify your name. To what do we ascribe glory? This is what Jesus says is glory or greatness to God. Luke 22, verse 26, the disciples are arguing with each other about who will be the greatest in heaven. And they have the audacity to go up to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, this is what I'm saying is the greatest. What do you think? And Jesus is like, man, guys, you do not get it, do you? This is what he says in verse 26. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. So the greatest among you is the one who seems to be the least great. And the leader as the one who serves. Jesus says that greatness and glory is found in how much of yourself you can pour out for others. Not how much of yourself you can exalt over others. And yet, what is glorious in our day and age? There's an upside-down logic to the kingdom of God. The last will be first. The first will be last. If you want to find your life, you need to lose it. It, it flips itself. And that's the same thing here. What we see in Jesus is the one who gave up most of himself is paradoxically also the one who is most highly exalted. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. This is a very important passage in the Bible that speaks to what's called Christology, which is the study or the understanding of Jesus as God, the theology of Christ, Christology. And this is what it says of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. This was known as a Christ hymn. So they think that the early church sang this um, as a sort of didactic tool to, to teach them. Starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So think this way. Verse 6. This Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, God, 
Jesus is God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he'd emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So again, being a servant of all, let's consider that according to Jesus. If you want to know what Jesus means by serving others, just look at what he did. He was God. He is God. He is the Son of God, eternally existent with God the Father. And this Jesus, in order to save us, divested himself of all his divine prerogatives and subjected himself to the toils and pains of humanity. He came and he took on flesh. Think about that. And we can't even, like I say that, I don't even know what that means, right? I can't even really understand that because it's just beyond un, you know, comprehension that God became man. Talk about, that's called the, the incarnation or the condescension of Christ. That God would give up, that Jesus would give up all the glories of heaven and subject himself to body aches, right? Uh, the Logans are moving right now. Um, Scott's back is toast, right? Jesus came down, and what he got was a hurt back, right? What he got was sweat. What he got was toil. What he got was dealing with us, right? But it wasn't just that. He didn't just subject himself to the pains of humanity. He subjected himself to the execution of humanity. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That the one who created all things was now killed by that same creation. Out of obedience to the Father, the Son comes and dwells among us. And his life is taken from him. Talk about sacrifice, right? But then we read this. The greatest among you must be servant of all. Jesus shows that exponentially. Then we read this, verse 9. Therefore, because he did this, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory, there's our word, of God the Father. At the end of this gospel message is glory. That Jesus was killed, that he was crucified on a cross, but the result of that was not shame, but glory. So now that he has the name as above every other name, Jesus is the hero. Jesus wins. He is glorious. What this tells us, what, what, why I am dwelling on this, is that it tells us that the cross is the key, okay? We can't lose the cross. We can't lose this idea of a suffering servant who died and then rose from the dead and proved to the world that God is glorious. We can't lose this idea of glory because if we lose this idea of glory, then we lose the purpose for all of it, the heart of all of it, and the motivation for all of it. Oh, that I would be motivated to live my life for the glory of God the way Jesus did. But a lot of times, that's not my greatest motivation. My greatest motivation is, what do I get out of this? What did Jesus get out of this? Death. But from that death, glory. The Apostle Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. 
I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. My uh, best friend in college, his name was Matthew. We grew up together uh, in high school, actually uh, elementary, middle, high school, and then college. And you know, down south, um, as far as beliefs, everyone's a Christian. Everyone's saved. Everyone gets baptized at age of seven, right? That's kind of how it is, whether that's truly the case or not. And me and Matthew um, both had sort of a spiritual awakening in college. Matthew got a degree uh, in religion, and he wound up getting a a degree, a master's degree in early Christian um, studies. And so we went to college together. I came out more convinced of this, of this. He came out agnostic from his religious degree, okay? Which is just the case. If you get a degree, you know, you go to a secular university, that's, that's what's going to happen five, um, nine times out of ten. And I remember having a conversation with Matthew about the gospel, about Jesus. And he, had, he said something to the effect, we always talk about Jesus dying on the cross. Well, eventually you kind of get past that stuff, right? What else is there? Okay, I've got it. What else is there? And to be honest, that was my approach to Jesus and the cross growing up as well. The cross was an entry point, right? Jesus was an entry point. I have to believe, and then I kind of go on and do my other thing. It's a turnstile. You believe, you walk through the turnstile, you punch your ticket to heaven, and then you go on and do other things, and then you wait till you die, and then you go to heaven, and you are all good. You hop on board the heaven train, and that was it. Very convenient, right? That was, that was kind of how I viewed it. My, you know, my dad was a pastor. I got to believe, I'm baptized, I'm all set, as we would say up here. But that's not it. That's not the gospel message. That's not the cross, right? That's not the gospel message. That's not the cross. This, this crucified Christ, it's more of a well that whenever you believe, you jump into the well, and the rest of your life is just going deeper and deeper and deeper into that well where you learn more about God's love for you, God's grace, God's mercy, and God's glory. And there's no end to that. I didn't get that before. I just thought, I just, it's, it was like just an easy equation. Two plus two equals four. I believe in Jesus. I'm good. I didn't get that. And I think a lot of people think that they just go through the motions. And they think as long as I say the right thing and do the right thing that I'm all set. And I'm just looking out for myself because I don't want to go to hell. That's not it, because it's not glorious. There's no glory for God in that. There's no exaltation of his name. There's no sacrifice. There's no exaltation. There is convenience. It's ATM Jesus. That's not how it works. Jesus showed us what it looks like to live for God. It looks like death. It looks like glory. For us, as we come to this, we need to realize it's all about him salvation is just going deeper and deeper and deeper down into that well. And whenever we do that, we live a cross-shaped life. And so I just want to bring that to you. What does your life look like here? How have you thought about that in your own life? Is it cross-shaped with all of the implications there of death to self, glory to God? This is the glory of the cross that Jesus died on and the glory of the cross that we are called to live for. That's what we see. And this glory leads to another glory. As we continue reading in verse 2, let me get back there. 
John 17, verses 2 and 3, and that's the glory of eternal life. The glory of the cross leads to the glory of eternal life for us. Verse 2. Since you have given me, Jesus, authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So we'll work through that. It's kind of a tongue twister. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So what is eternal life? There's two things we're going to work through here. And that is, what is eternal life, and who gets it? What is eternal life, and who gets it? Verse 3, again. This is eternal life. So Jesus just flips to his Webster Dictionary and gives us the definition. And this is great, because you don't have to, like, kind of interpret the parable. He just tells us. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Whenever we think about eternal life, we often think of heaven. We die and go to heaven. Eternal life as a destination, right? But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't describe it as a destination. He describes it as a knowledge. As a knowledge. As knowing God. As knowing His Son. This is eternal life, that they know the Father. And that totally changes it. Because we aren't trying to get to heaven. We are trying to get to God. This is what Jesus says in John 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come to judgment, but is passed from death to life. For those who believe in Christ, we have eternal life right now. Even in this temporary world, whenever we confess and believe, eternal life just shoots forward. We're, we're there with God in heaven in a sense. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, um, in this world, for those who believe in Jesus, this is the closest we'll ever get to hell. For those who don't believe the gospel, this is the closest they'll ever get to heaven, right? Whenever you believe, your name's there, written in the book of life, right? But our experience of that is incomplete. We know God, yes, but we don't know him fully. It says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, Back, back in the day, they didn't have glass, so they just shined like bronze, and that's, that was their mirror, right? We see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then we shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The glory of eternal life and the glory of heaven is that we can know God fully, unencumbered by sin, unencumbered by death, unencumbered by the fallenness of this world, the sin that has caused us to fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that we see God dimly now, but we'll see him fully to come. I, I think, this is, this is what I think. I think we have drastically underthought heaven. Okay? And let me, I'm going to say something, and don't hate me for it, but I'm just going to say it. A lot of us are excited to get to heaven because that's where grandma is. Right? And that's great. I miss my grandma, and I'm excited to see her in heaven. For sure, 1,000%. And my parents, you know, they're obviously older, and they're going to pass away probably before me. 
and I'm going to be excited to see them in heaven. Heaven is not about my dead relatives, okay? Not, nothing against them, right? I love them. Heaven is consumed with the glory of God. You're going to get to heaven, and you're going to be like, Austin, there's my mom. There's God. There's Jesus, right? That's what's going to occupy you. That's what eternal life is. Eternal life is to know the Father. It's not a family reunion, although hopefully your family will be there. They get to be a part. It is a fullness of relationship that we have right now that isn't fully yet realized. Now we get to step into it. All of those mountaintop experiences that you might have with God in this life, and praise God for that. I remember having a conversation with my sister, and I was in the basement of the church I was working at at the time, and I felt like she was getting these things and understanding who Jesus was, and I got off the phone, and I remember just being so happy and so uh, satisfied in God at that moment, okay? Do you know how the Apostle Paul describes that? He describes it as looking in a dim mirror, right? That experience that I had of God's presence and, and goodness and love is a dim mirror in this life compared to seeing God face to face in the next. This is how John describes it, Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. So we go in the presence of God and this is what flows out of him. Heaven is relationship with God fully realized. That's what it is. Relationship with God fully realized. Knowledge of God fully known. Right now, I know Him, but only barely compared to what I'm going to see whenever I get there. We think about the incarnation. Heaven is the reverse. Jesus came to dwell among men so that eternal life, men might dwell amongst God. That's what we get. As a people, we have misunderstood heaven and, and eternal life and emptied it of its power by detaching it from the glory of God. The Pew Research Center did a study on American views of the afterlife. And what they found is that 73% of all U.S. adults believed in heaven. And that's pretty cool. We can have conversations with people and we can be certain that most of the time, these people believe in an afterlife. We, you know, I, I think a lot of evangelism and all that is just having conversations that people don't really have a lot. But that's an easy one. Do you, what do you believe about, you know, after this? Is there heaven? Is there hell? Three times out of four, the people will say, yeah, I believe in a heaven. What they also found is that 40% of the people who responded did not think you had to believe in God to go to heaven. Okay including 45% of Christians. So more Christians than just the general population believes that you do not have to believe in God to go to heaven. Interesting. It's as if God is incidental to the entire enterprise, right? 
Take him or leave him, doesn't matter. You can get into heaven no matter what. You're all, you're all set, right? Let me say this. According to the Bible, if you do not believe in God, you would not want to go to heaven. You wouldn't want to go there. It would be of no interest to you because heaven is consumed with the glory of God. Heaven is what it is because God is there. It's not like some house that God decided to move into because it had a pool and he invited us over. That's not what heaven is. Heaven is the overflow of God's person. It says in heaven that there's no sun or moon because the glory of the Lord provides the light. That's what heaven is. Heaven is relationship with God fully realized and it's glorious. And I, the reason I, I'm harping on this is because I think, I think that we just think so less of God. Again, Jesus came to glorify the Father and the end of this is glory with God in heaven. And right now, what do you think about the glory of God? Does that excite you? Does the idea of worshiping God to the end of time, does that excite you? And to be honest, a lot of times that doesn't excite me. I'm just going to be completely honest. Because I got my life that I'm living, that I'm working out, and things that I want to do. And sometimes the glory of the Lord gets in the way of that. Right? You know what I'm saying? Just being real. Right? And then I'm settling for things so much less I have, I have viewed the glory of the Lord so much less that, that my best life is whenever it's not about me and it's about Him. But there's that struggle because I want it to be about me. And then I look at what eternal life, and, and, and eternal life is and what heaven is. And it's all about Him. And yet I've made it into like a nice place I get to go to whenever I die. It's not about me. It's not about me. And it's not about you. Eternal life is glorious because God is there. No more pain, no more struggle, no more tears. Think about the miscarriage we had a year ago, right? No more babies miscarried, right? No pain, no sorrow. It's glory. That's what we get in Christ. We get glory. It's good. Now, who gets to have eternal life? This is where we're going to take a little turn. It's going to be good, though. Who gets to have eternal life? Let's read it again. Verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Okay? Who gets to go to heaven? Jesus says, or who gets to have eternal life? Jesus says that he gives eternal life to everyone who has been given to him by the Father. What does that mean? Let's tease this out. Who has eternal life? Everyone who has been given to the Son from the Father. We just said that those who hear the word of God and believe have eternal life. So who has eternal life? Those who repent and believe in Jesus. But now it says, 
that Jesus gives eternal life, again, to whom the Father's given him. So who has eternal life? Those who have been given to the Son by the Father. How does that work? It doesn't talk about us at all. Those who have eternal life have been given to the Son by the Father. It doesn't talk about us at all in that verse. It's almost like we're just along for the ride. What is this? How to understand this? This is one of the deepest and most profound mysteries in Christian doctrine and theology, and something that some people don't agree with. Okay, what we see in salvation and in those who, who go to heaven is like two streams. Those who have eternal life are called to believe, to respond to the message on the one hand, but also on the other hand, what we see is that those who have eternal life have it because God has sovereignly elected those who would believe, independent of that person's own actions. Okay? Again, read it. Those who have eternal life have it because the Father has given them to the Son. So I have eternal life because God has given me to the Son, independent of me forcing His hand. I didn't force the hand of God. God did it Himself. Two streams running simultaneously. I repent and believe, and yet God, from the beginning of time, has declared that I would do so. He has given me to the Son. How does that work? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how that works. That's what the Bible says. John 6, verse 44. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You cannot come to Jesus unless God sovereignly ordains you to do so. Unless that lower stream of God's sovereignty pushes you towards faith, you will not go. These are deep things. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. I'll just read it. Blessed be God, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have all this blessing through Jesus. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God chose us before I was around, you were around, anything around, before the foundation of the world, before Genesis 1-1, chosen in Jesus to be holy, blameless, set apart. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. I stand saved purely by God's sovereign grace over my life. And yet at the same time, I have repented and believed. I have repented and believed. God decided it. God did it. The Father has given me to the Son who has eternal life. Those who believe the gospel message, yes. Who has eternal life? Those whom the Father has predestined to believe, yes. How do those work? I don't know. That's what it says. Let me tell you why this is glorious. Because you might be thinking, well, why even preach the message then? Why even preach the gospel then? How does this work? Is it, is God just decides it. How does this work? Let me tell you why this is glorious. What this means is that no one is too far gone 
from God. You're not too far, God from, too far gone from God. No one is so messed up. No one is so jacked up that God cannot save them. No matter how many poor decisions you have made in your life, no matter where you find yourself, no matter how far deep in rebellion against God you are, His sovereignty still reigns supreme over you. He will never lose any of His own. Isaiah 59 1 says this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not short, and then it cannot save, not even by my own sin, or his ear dull that he cannot hear. For us, church, we don't know the mind of God. He doesn't give us flashing lights over people's heads that says, given to Jesus, not given to Jesus. doesn't work that way. We are called to preach the gospel and trust that a sovereign God will save his people. And not only trust that, but be confident in that that this God can sovereignly save. It's bigger than us. It's deeper than us. It's grander than us. Because it's not about us. This God will be glorified. He has shown the world His glory in the cross, the glories of Calvary, that He would send His own Son, that would give up everything He had in heaven and subject Himself to the hands of evil, lawless men, and yet be exalted out of the tomb. And then he shares that glorious cross with us through eternal life, whereby we have believed and await the day then we can know God fully. No sin, no strain, no struggle, that we get to be where God is and understand that God has done that himself. This is a very deep prayer. This idea of glory is a very deep thing. It's bigger than us. It's grander than us. And we get a taste of it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you that I just, I feel as I come to it so very small. Lord, that we come to you, we come to your word, and as we look at you, it's just an expanse, Lord, wider and deeper than anything that we could know. It's like the Grand Canyon. Just We're small compared to it. Especially these things of your sovereignty saving and, and yet calling us to respond ourselves. It's just bigger than us. It's bigger than me. And yet you come and, and have come to us in ways we, we can't understand. In flesh, dwelling amongst us. Lord, help us to understand you as best we can, but then also to just to revel in the glory of it all. Help us, Lord, to want to live for your glory. Help us, Lord, to be satisfied in that. Help us, Lord, to look forward to heaven, that it will be a family reunion to some degree. Praise, praise you for that. But because ultimately that's where you are. And we want to be where you are. And where we have kind of crossed those lines here in this world, help us to think through them rightly. Lord, we thank you for Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. We thank you that he did come and subject himself to the hands of the lawless men. It's just so crazy that he did that and died there. The, the one least deserving ever died there. And now every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord, whether in this life or the next. Help us to live for that glory, Lord. Help us to see that glory played out in our marriages, in our parenting, in our work, in our hobbies, in our time, in our money, in every aspect, every nook and cranny of our lives, holy given, holy devoted 
to you. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus, who has made all this so. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to the Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning at Fort Hill Community Church in Gorham, Maine. For more information about Pastor Aaron or Fort Hill Community Church, visit us on Facebook or check out our website at www.forthillchurch.com.